One of our amazing listeners, Jess, left this review. As I was listening to your podcast, I easily related to the pressures felt once you are given the label gifted. Of course, we didn't have this description back in the day, but when I excelled at math in middle school, they ended up taking me and similar kids out to do our math class separately. They gave us more work to do and higher expectations. So I ended up not doing my work and not turning anything in so I could go back to my regular math class with everyone else and have the normal amount of work. So I got kicked out on purpose. I hated the separation and the fact that because I was smarter, I got more work. You guys did such a great job. Can't wait to keep listening. 10 out of 10. If you're a fan of our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review or share this episode on your own social media. Every like and share counts and helps us to reach families and educators who are trying to navigate and advocate for the gifted loved ones in their lives. When I was working in the district, we did a screen of every kindergartner and I have very mixed feelings about this, but we did a kindergarten sweep screen for giftedness. What was interesting to me about that experience is we also asked the teachers to write down who they thought in their class was gifted. The list did not match up very well, but what we found is the kids that were on the teacher's gifted list had been to high quality pre-K and were being successful in kindergarten, right? Mm -hmm. So they came in already knowing their letters. That's not necessarily a sign of giftedness. That just means they had early exposure or they could already do some reading. Well, one, no, they're just word callers. They recognize these words. Um, And some of these kiddos that they weren't picking up on were blowing our screener out of the water, but they were also the ones that really just weren't super interested in letters. Thank you very much because I'm hyper-focused on this one really weird thing (laughs) Um, and driving you slightly crazy as the kindergarten teacher, right? And so I think that's where it gets really complicated And, and having those conversations with students and having them watch for those social cues Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast, They'll Be Fine. I'm one of your hosts, Hannah Park, and for this episode, Alexia Rose, NCAGT board member and They'll Be Fine podcast editor, will be co-hosting. Time and time again, we hear they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. And because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their full potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum and services. The National Association for Gifted Children reports that 73% of teachers agree that too often the brightest students are bored and under-challenged in school. Teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. And while yes, this is a very important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. We have to acknowledge the growing excellence gap. So here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We're here because the saying, they'll be fine, just isn't good enough.
In today's episode, we sit down with Heather Bauer, who's currently serving as the Department Head and Coordinator of Assessment at Meredith College. She also teaches in both the undergraduate and graduate education programs at Meredith. Bauer completed her doctorate from UNC Chapel Hill and has a background as both a classroom teacher and administrator. She's taught grades 7 through 12 in language arts and AVID. She's also served as the College Access Programs Coordinator in a very large public school system. In these positions, Heather has taught all levels of students and has helped create, implement, and monitor programs for students in grades 4 through 12, along with their families and teachers. Bauer's recent research focuses on family involvement in school culture, particularly as it pertains to teacher identity and school reform. Today, Heather's going to be sharing with us a little bit about what Meredith College is doing to prepare teachers to enter the world of education and to be prepared to work hands-on every day with gifted learners. She was an absolute treat to speak with, so sit back and enjoy. So welcome to They'll Be Fine. We're really excited to have you and we appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. It means a lot. My pleasure. So what brought you into the world of education? Can you share with us a little bit about your journey? Sure. Um, And I laugh because if you had asked me when I was even in college, if I'd ever be an education professor, that would have never crossed my mind. Um, I grew up knowing I was going to teach kindergarten. I was going to be a kindergarten teacher um, from the time I was in kindergarten. And then I got into high school and my high school fortunately let us job shadow. And I job shadowed a kindergarten teacher and I realized I don't like kindergartners. Um, I, I love them individually. 20 of them in one place is just a bit much for me. Um, but at that point I'd fallen in love with English. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to teach. I'm just going to become a high school English teacher. So I went and I did my undergraduate in that I've taught middle and high school. I, I got my license in Ohio. So it's a 612 license. So I've kind of taught everything in there and all the things that, you know, yearbook and newspaper and all those kind of things. And I loved it. Um, and then I was teaching and they asked me to be an AVID teacher, which is a program for students who are kind of in the middle and need extra support. They're often first generation students. And I fell in love with that work. But what I found is there were a lot of policies that put unnecessary barriers up for kids. Um, Some of them around gifted ed, right? And so I went back to get my master's in school administration thinking, all right, I'm gonna write the policy. So I did some building level work before I moved into central office and I did college access programs for 47 schools, K-12, and really just looking at how do we identify kids who may be gifted earlier? How do we remove barriers for kids that we don't figure out could do advanced coursework until they're well along in the process? Um, And I did ACT prep and SAT prep and bizarrely dropout prevention was part of my job. You know, when you work in education, you kind of wear a lot of hats. And as I was doing that work, I'm like, oh gosh, these aren't just district policies. These are state and federal policies that are blocking pathways for students. Mm -hmm. So I went back to get my doctorate thinking I was going to do policy work. Um, And I was working at the, the university while I was getting my doctorate and doing translational research. I started doing professional development modules online for teachers about best practices And I thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I finally found it. I love this. Um, And then the internet bubble burst and the company I was working for closed. Mm 
Um, so I was kind of scrambling for what's my next move. And one of my mentors at the university said, hey, I know somebody who's looking for somebody to teach ed psych. Um, I met with a department head and the next week I was in a, a college classroom teaching future teachers um, in the entry level class. And when I was in that classroom and I started teaching, I'm like, I finally found it. This is it. This is what I'm going to do. And I have found that I think the only way we're going to make big changes in education is by educating the next generation of teachers. Absolutely. And making sure that they hit the classroom ready to go, ready to not only teach, but also advocate and make those changes that we need to make in our system. I, I love that you said that. Uh, the story you shared about kindergarten, because I have some experience teaching kindergarten as well. Hurting <laughs> sheep. Yeah, that was the, honestly one of the roughest years of my life. And I kind of think that every teacher should have to spend at mm -hmm. least like a few days in a kindergarten classroom. <laughs> yeah, And my favorite are freshmen and they're not that much different. They're just bigger, um, <laughs> but I love them. You know, that's my favorite. And I think the same thing, everybody should have to spend some time in kinder. Everybody should have to spend some time with freshmen and everyone should have to do seventh grade. Cause if you can survive seventh grade, you can survive anything. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I could imagine like they'd eat me alive. <laughs> <laughs> They're funny. So Heather, you are currently the department head and coordinator of assessment at Meredith college and you teach undergraduate and graduate level classes. What does your day-to-day -day life and schedule look like? That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love my job. Part of what I love is it's not unlike a teacher and that no two days are the same. Um, so I, I do teach both undergraduate and graduate courses. So, you know, those are on a typical college schedule. Um, I get to supervise student teachers, which I love. So that changes too. I try and see them at different times, different days. You know, at the beginning, I never go on a Friday because that's just mean. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I'm out in schools a lot with real teachers and real children. One of the things I particularly love about my work this year is we've been doing research on classroom management and our classroom management course. Um, I think classroom and behavior management is one of the most challenging things to teach because it's all theoretical until you have actual children in front of you. And then they do slightly bizarre things that we forgot to tell you about like yes. kids just do weird things right and it's also challenging in this area because there are some really strong um policies and practices around classroom and behavior management in individual pockets but there's no consistent thing mm -hmm. so we used to spend a lot of time focusing on certain types of classroom management systems and what we found is principals were saying, that's awesome, but my school doesn't use that. We use this. And so now we're really trying to look at how do we teach them general best, best practices that will fit no matter where they go. And I teach that class. And one of the things that I'm doing this year is I'm working with a school that wanted to completely redo their classroom and behavior management system. So we started last summer, they're rebuilding. And then one full day a week, I'm in there problem solving, coaching, working with with kiddos and trying to go, okay, so this is working for 90% of kids. What are we going to do with this 10%? And is it what's actually going to work? And of course, po post pandemic, everything is different. And oh, so yeah. real trying to, it's been great for me to be in there and to have that continued exposure. It's one thing when you pop in and out, it's another where you're like, okay, we can do this. Here's what we're going to try this week. Like it's been really good. And I love that my work allows me to do that. 
That's um, I, one of the classes that I teach for Pfeiffer is behavior management. And I love that you spend so much time in the classroom with children because it's so hard to learn from a professor or professional development when it comes into your school and you're getting PD from someone who hasn't necessarily been in a classroom in years, you know, and like you said, the classroom is diff, it's a different world after COVID. I mean, it truly is. So that's amazing. I love to hear that you guys are just so hands-on and that you're, you're problem solving for the now. Yeah, that's, it's, it's challenging, but it's such good work. Mm -hmm. So what experience do you have personally with gifted learners or gifted education? So when I taught high school, I taught what we would consider some of the gifted classes, the honors classes, where our AIG students are kind of tracked. Let's just call it what it is. Um, So I've taught that. Both my kids were identified as gifted. Um, I'll be honest, I pulled them both from their elementary program. I didn't like it, right? So I think I have kind of a, in fact, when I was getting ready to do this interview, my husband was like, you have kind of a complicated relationship with gifted. I'm like, I know that's going to be awesome. Um, And then I, you know, a lot of the kids that I'm working with one-on-one in the school this year are gifted, right? I think there's that myth that gifted students love school and they're so easy to work with and they are not, not always that demographic. And so trying to help with some of those kiddos and doing the, I, I get, I hear what you're saying, but also no. So what was it about the gifted programs that you didn't necessarily love for your children? Because we're hoping that this podcast also reaches parents and letting them know that they're not alone in their frustrations. Yeah. So I have um, two very different gifted children. I have one who is, is that stereotypical, the teacher says, do it, and I'm going to do it that and, right? (laughs) And super anxious about making sure everything's perfect. We're working on it, but you know, that kid. And then I have the other one that, um, yeah, but tell me why, right? Like, why do I really need to do this? Um, I, I see what you want me to do, but here's my shortcut. And so that's what I'm going to do. So I've, I've got both ends of the spectrum, which makes dinnertime conversations super fun. <laughs> um, but what I was saying is their gifted program at the time they were in it was not different. It was just more. Mm. So they would miss the regular math instruction to go do more of the same math and then have to bring that math work that they missed home to do. And it was basically just more of the same. There was no actual enrichment. There was no, you already know this. And so they're doing double the work and not getting any benefit. And for my daughter, that was super stressful, right? Now I've got all this extra homework and I'm already trying to do this and this and this. And, and it was just a lot. And for my son, he's going, uh-uh, I already did this. I'm not doing it again. And it just became a, you know what? But I also knew that even if I pulled them from elementary, I could quote unquote, get them in the honors classes in middle and high school, right? I know that route. I knew they could be successful in the classroom. Not every family has that knowledge. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't think I've heard anyone make that point before. And that is where I, I tend to, cause you know, the, the trope is, well, you have to start an AIG in elementary. So then you can take the honors classes in, in middle school. So you can take the high school classes in eighth grade. So then you're, that's not true. <laughs> that is not the way this has to roll. Um, and it's not necessarily the way it should. 
And so I think that's where we need to do a better job of helping people understand there are many, many pathways. Um, and within the regular classroom, especially at the elementary school level, we can accommodate gifted children without having to pull them out to do something different. Yeah, absolutely. So over time, have you had mm -hmm. any mindset shifts about gifted education? I know you've seen it through lots of different lenses. So what kind of mindset shifts have you had um, as a mom and also as an educator? Sure. So I think all of my my parenting around education is so deeply informed by the fact that I am a teacher. So it's hard for me to tease those out. But as a teacher, I can remember when I started teaching thinking, you have made it when you get to teach the honors classes, right? Those are going to be the easy classes because those are the kids that love school and love your subject. And then I started doing it and going, this is not easy. <laughs> this is not easy. And and there are kids that are in my regular class that could be doing the work in my honors class and kids in my honors class that don't want to be here. They hate English. They want to be an engineer. Why are we making them sit in my classroom and making everyone themselves, myself, their families miserable? Oh, yeah. Like this is not working for anybody. But I think right now our culture is in this mindset of it's all or nothing and more is better. And that's the conversation I have to have a lot with my daughter. She, she um, has, she's at a high school that is fabulous, that has access to AP and IB courses and dual enrollment. Oh, wow. Um, one, holy cow, that doesn't happen most places, right? But that also means there's a lot of really challenging decisions for, let's face it, teenagers and their families who don't know. And I think she has chosen to go the dual enrollment route because she knows where she wants to go to college. She knows what she wants to do. So she's just knocking out all of her gen eds and double dipping. The amount of time I have had to spend explaining to counselors who are very well-meaning and explaining to other parents who think I'm insane, like, but she's gonna be behind. She'll never get into college because she didn't take AP classes. I sit on the admissions board, we don't care. Right. We want to see that you've challenged yourself. College classes are innately challenging. And also you don't have the stress of the test. Mm -hmm. you, you pass the class, you get the credit. You can get a 99 in an AP class, have a bad day on the test and you don't get the credit. I feel like we're learning all the secrets. Wow. Right. Yeah. With IB, like it's a, it's a package deal and you're taking like my daughter's friends who are in IB are little stress balls. And I'm like, y'all, you're 16. Like, just calm down. You have the rest of your life to be this freaked out about stuff. And I wish I had you when I was going through high school. As a first generation college student, there were too many options and I had no idea what to do. And I did the AP class and the transfer didn't, the credit didn't transfer. Right. Not fun. Think, no, it's not fun. And I think, I did all APs because it was the only option I had. Mm -hmm. And I remember being a stress ball and then getting to college and going, I don't, I don't actually know what that did for me, except that my teacher told me these were going to be like my college classes and actually they are not right. Which is the other trope that AP prepares you for college. And I have to say 15 years ago, I was all in on AP, right? Like, absolutely. This is what gets kids ready until I started teaching college and going, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe not. Um, 
and they're great. Like, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just not saying they're the only. And I think so often we feel like our gifted kids have one path and this is it. And it's not always even shaped by what's in the best interest of kids. It's in this perception of what is best. And that is really challenging. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot about dual enrollment is, but they're going to miss all the high school experiences. No, they're not. She's going to prom. They can still play on sports teams. You know, they can still be part of clubs. They just miss part of the day. They spend it at a college campus instead of there. And we also have to remember some kids don't want that. And that's okay. Like if we really want to do what's in the best interest of kids, we have to look at what the kid wants. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. what we think the kid wants or what we remember. You know, I remember I loved high school. I didn't, but you know, that's often what I hear. But why would they want to skip a year? Like, why would they graduate early? They're gonna miss. They don't want to. They just don't want to. So let's let them launch. At the same time, we need to calm down and there's no rush. You know, I get a lot of students that have been fast-tracked through early college. So they come in with a full associate's degree. They're 17, 18 years old. They want to finish their undergraduate degree in two years because they can on paper, but then they're graduating at 20. That's a long time to be an adult. And I get that they may have the academic credits, but they don't have the life experience when they're trying to enter that real world. Um, We know the adolescent brain isn't fully developed until 26. So at 20, it's still a little dicey, (laughs) right? Um, And it's a conversation we have. I I teach teachers. Do I want a 20-year-old as the teacher of seniors in high school? maybe but even then like there's just a lot of stuff that has to happen and and what's our rush what's our rush we've got a lifetime slow down I love that not fast tracking them and and pushing them through and I I think it's so important to highlight what you said about paying attention to their interest and what they want to do and what they do not want to do. And why are we forcing these kids to sign up because there's a supposed path that they should take. And that's just not, it's not the reality of it. No, my daughter is, is gifted in math. She hates math. (laughs) Um, she's not going to do AP calc. We're not, we're not doing it. Her math teacher is so sad. Her dad, who is an engineer, is so sad, but she, she wants to be a teacher. She wants to be a special education teacher. You don't need calculus for that. And she doesn't want to do it. So why do it just because she can? Well, there's so many social emotional um, issues that can arise with gifted learners. And I feel like a lot of times it's because of the pressure and being forced and put into situations that you don't want to do. And you're almost training them to be people pleasers and the yes man, because that's just the way it goes. Well, and then we put them all in one room all day together. Yeah. Right? So we put all these highly driven children that we've now made even more highly driven into one room to talk about all the things that are causing them stress. And then we wonder why they're more stressed. So at at Meredith, how yeah. do you guys make sure that you are integrating these local and state policies into your program? 
So one of the things that we do that I'm really proud of about AIG, one of our students take one of two classes first. It's either EDU 232 or EDU 234. Either one, those are the first two they take. They're the gateways to everything else. EDU 234 is teaching and learning. And the focus of that class is on academically and intellectually gifted students. That's so the course is about, you know, we do all the intro to learning theory, intro to lesson planning, intro to standards, you know, all that. It's, it, I call it education 101 oftentimes because it's all the basic stuff you need. But we also spend a lot of time talking about gifted learners, what they are, what they're not, um, how to serve them in the gen ed classroom, no matter what you're teaching. And then their field experience, part of it is they're, they're doing very specific observations for the things we're talking about in class. They're going in and seeing how Piaget or Vygotsky would apply to this classroom. But five hours of it is working one-on-one -on -one with a student who is identified as gifted. That could be academically gifted. It could be across the board gifted. It could be single subject. It could be for our art students. You've got a, an art student that is gifted in art, yeah. but there is something that makes them gifted. And they spend five hours one-on-one -on -one with that child. And so part of it is helping develop extension activities for the classroom. What might this look like that is different, not more. Yes. But a big part of it too, is just watching that child in different contexts. So you watch them in their art class where they're tremendously gifted and loving life. And then you follow them to history where maybe they're not. And you go with them to lunch and you see what that's like. And, and talking with them about school and schooling and their experiences, it's really powerful. And then their final project is they actually develop a plan for that student that they share with the teacher and have a conversation. We do not have the expectation that the plan will be fully implemented. Let's sure. face it, they've had one yeah. education class, like they're, they're solid, but there's no expectation of, we have just solved the world's problem. Yeah. No. Um, but it's a great opportunity for them to talk with teachers and for them to see this could be done within the classroom. We could do this differently. Um, and we talk a lot about contracting and compacting the curriculum. Like let's give everybody across the board a pre-assessment. If they already have mastered this content, there is no need for them to do it again. And that's true for all kids. Yes. Because one of the things I've seen is you have students where all of a sudden you hit one particular unit and for whatever bizarre reason, they already know it. They may struggle the rest of the year, but this skill they've got, awesome. They should have the same opportunity for extension. And that helps take away some of that social awkwardness for our students of this is good for everybody. Everybody has different gifts and talents and we can recognize those and honor those no matter who you are. Yeah, you'll see so many teachers just kind of sit on units that their kids already know just because the county pacing guide says that this week, this is what we're learning. <laughs> Correct, but I've done the pre-assessment and we've already learned this. Yes. So why am I doing this again? Or even just for five kids that already know it, then why, like, I don't, I don't need to teach this again. You're going to be bored, which is going to cause all of us problems. And I'm missing an opportunity for you to grow. And if you look at some of the the data, it's our gifted kids who aren't growing. Their achievement is always going to be awesome. It's probably awesome the day they walked in my classroom. Like people used to get all excited about my English one scores for my honors kids. Y'all, if they didn't pass the test, I did something really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like 
they should pass. I want to see, did I grow you at all? Have you learned some new skills? And sometimes those are thinking skills because sometimes for our gifted kids, they're looking for the right answer. And they hated my class because we're in literature, right? There's a million right answers. You're writing a creative story. That can be a gifted student's nightmare. Where's the right answer? Baby, you're making this up. You tell me. <laughs> um, and you know, that's really, it's a different kind of challenge, but it's, it's those kind of things that we need to provide for students. So do you notice that when your, your college age students are coming in, do they have these kind of like preconceived misconceptions about gifted learners? What do you notice mostly? So I think the first, the first thing we always have to battle is they think that gifted learners are going to be sitting there in the classroom with their hands folded, bouncing up and down, waiting for, you know, give me the work, give me the work, you know, like, and, and I can tell you that's, that's not always the case, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, they also think that gifted students are going to do the work, <laughs> uh, which can, if you've ever taught gifted ed, you know, that is not the case. Like I have spent more time tracking down their assignments going, I, I just need something. Give me something on paper that I can assess, please. And thank you. Um, and so I think they also tend to think that gifted students are good at school. And that's, that's not always true. When I was working in the district, we did a screen of every kindergartner, and I have very mixed feelings about this, but we did a kindergarten sweep screen for giftedness. Um, what was interesting to me about that experience is we also asked the teachers to write down who they thought in their class was gifted. Ooh. The list did not match up very well, but what we found is the kids that were on the teacher's gifted list had been to high quality pre-K and were being successful in kindergarten right? Mm -hmm. So they came in already knowing their letters. That's not necessarily a sign of giftedness. That just means they had early exposure or they could already do some reading. Well, one, no, they're just word callers. They recognize these words. Um, and some of these kiddos that they weren't picking up on were blowing our screener out of the water, but they were also the ones that really just weren't super interested in letters. Thank you very much because I'm hyper-focused on this one really weird thing. <laughs> um, and driving you slightly crazy as the kindergarten teacher, right? And so I think that's where it gets really complicated and, and having those conversations with students and having them watch for those social cues. You know, one of the things we talk a lot about in 234 is acceleration by subject, by grade, by content, you know, or by standard, all these different things. And grade level acceleration is tricky. Um, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, we talk a lot about the things we take into account for that, and it can't solely be academics. And that there are some positive and negative challenges. My daughter entered kindergarten a year early because it was that or she was going to drive the preschool teacher to early retirement, right? <laughs> so she entered early, which was awesome. Elementary school, no problem, till everybody else started getting their driver's license, and she's still 14 right? We're lucky she's tall. So she kind of blends in. That's not always the case, right? And so you're trying to figure out how to navigate those social dynamics, have zero regrets, but there are those bumps where you're like, oh, interesting. She'll go to college when she's 17. That's going to require a lot of paperwork. Yeah. Um, those kind of things that you don't think about when kids are four. Or right now, you know, I'm working with a kinder who is 
he has some really crazy splinter skills. He came in reading at a third grade level, bless his heart, he can't spell at all. So what do you, what do you do with that? No preschool. So school in general is a super huge trouble right now. And you're going, okay, first grade isn't the answer. Sitting here learning letters doesn't feel right, except he doesn't know, he can tell you the sounds they make, but he can't make the sounds make words. What do we do with this? Because the books that would teach him those things are tremendously boring when you can pick up chapter books and read them no problem. We have a whole team that spends a lot of time going, I don't know, <laughs> let's try this this week. Like, let's see if this is engaging. Let's see if this helps fill the gap because I can tell you those worksheets aren't going to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, what are you guys doing for this? Um, we don't, we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, trying to figure it out. <laughs> a long time to even figure out and assess because the screening tools don't work because mm. he can read them. No problem. So when we were doing the reading assessments, he can talk to you about letter sounds. He can tell you what he, every sound makes, but then when he goes to spell, it doesn't work, which makes him frustrated. Well, and I think that this is one of the important things that when we have teachers learning to become teachers, why it's so important for them to learn how to be problem solvers and to be innovative and to learn to kind of, you have to observe and assess and that each child is truly different and there is no guidebook. <laughs> Our current next strategy um, is he's doing voice to text so he can mm -hmm. see his words become physical words. And then hopefully that will be engaging enough. And it seems to be working for him to start to want to learn to spell because he's just not very troubled about it right now. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, he doesn't need to write. Nobody needs to write. Writing is stupid. So we've got to find a way to make that make sense for him. And not stunt him from reading. And Correct. Like yeah. we want you to keep reading. You can read, you can comprehend, but we also would like you to be able to write down your ideas, not just tell them to us sure um but he's also got the stamina of a five-year-old like some of those words are very long when your fine motor is a little behind oh yeah it's a lot so heather we want to give you a chance to talk about what sets meredith apart mm -hmm from other universities and colleges when it comes to gifted education and teaching that? So this is always a, a difficult question because I don't know what everybody else is doing, mm -hmm. right? So I don't want to say we're automatically better, although I'm a little biased. <laughs> um, but I do think the fact that we, we front load this, this is not an afterthought or something we talk about when you're going into student teaching. This is something, a conversation we, we start in your first class so we can keep picking up on that thread. So you have tools, actual tools that you could take with you into the classroom and use that you've been using our whole program, I think just sets you up to enter the classroom differently because it becomes a foundation of what you do mm -hmm. instead of something you've added on later. Um, what I find is the things that we teach them later in the program, unless they are survival, like classroom management, they tend to look at as nice to have and the things that they've been doing for all the whole program become their foundation. So I'm very proud of the fact that this is part of their foundation. 
And when we talk about differentiation, you know, oftentimes that gets talked about in terms of special education and how are we helping the kids who are struggling? But it also has to be, how are we challenging the kids that are already thriving so that they continue to thrive and they don't check out on us? Yeah, and having them understand that there's the achievement gap and the excellence gap. Yes. So at your university, do you have any short or long-term goals for exposing your students to gift education? Are there conversations happening? We're constantly in conversation. And you know, and part of what we're doing is trying to figure out what this looks like post-COVID. Mm. Like with everything else, in some ways, differentiation is different. And in, in some ways, it's easier because we've gotten better at using technology. Mm. Uh, and so how can we help them use that? I've seen some really creative things happening in classrooms where the teacher, it's almost like flipped instruction within the classroom. So they're using those pre-recorded lectures, lessons that they made during the pandemic instead of just throwing those out. Students can be watching those during class. So then the teacher can be pulling more small groups to meet the kids where they are. So that's something we're talking about. It's, it's tricky, right? Like I, I don't always want the main lesson to be on a screen, but maybe sometimes that's a powerful tool. Um, especially if you do that pre-assessment and you find out 90% of your kids already have it, then you might as well put the 10% on the screen and start the extension activity with the 90%. Yeah. Um, and really thinking through some of those things. We're also trying to figure out I think anyone who's ever worked with gifted students knows that social emotional is um, particularly interesting with, with gifted kids on a variety of levels. And post pandemic, that seems worse. Um, I think as a whole, as a culture, everybody's anxiety is up. Gifted students already tended to be an anxious little bunch. And so that has not gotten better. Um, so how are we addressing that? I think too, this idea of, but I can do things online and then I can get them done faster. Well, okay, maybe, but maybe faster is not better. This is the conversation I have with my son. You know, he used to be able to knock out when we were online learning, he was done with school in an hour. He was golden. Well, now he's got to go all day. And he's like, yeah, but if I was home, I could just do it in an hour. I'm like, but, but did you really like, you can do things differently. You can do different learning face-to-face -face and having those conversations of why it's important and that school isn't just about doing the math problems and how do we learn to work together I think anybody who's taught gifted kids knows that can be it tends to be a room full of leaders and or renegades <laughs> which makes collaboration tricky um, and how do we work with that and helping teachers understand where they can be flexible with with students in general, but I think especially gifted kids who let's let's see what they come up with. And oftentimes that does mean more work for us. One of the stories I love to tell is I had a freshman um, who hated writing and for their poetry anthology, I gave them a, 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 the whole class had tons of free reign, but these are the things you had to show me. And he managed to turn in his entire poetry anthology on um, a voice recorder. But one of the things they had to show me was revision and editing. So he voiced over his original poems with his revision and editing. <laughs> I promise you, he spent more, more, way more time on that than any other kid in my class. 
but he didn't have to physically write a single thing. It technically met all my requirements. It took me forever to grade, <laughs> but it was brilliant. Like I'm still using that example almost 20, oh gosh, over 20 years later now. Like right? this is like, foreshadowing to your kindergarten friend you were talking about earlier. Right? Like yeah. these are the things where you're just like, okay. But then having to have the conversation with him of super cool, well done. And also at some point I'm going to need you to write them down. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but that, that's not a power battle I have to get into and how creative. And he taught himself a whole digital editing software to pull this off. Well done, friends. Well done. Well, that's beautiful that you have that mindset going into it because there are some teachers who would just immediately say, no, you did not follow the directions, you know, and, and really crush that creativity. And like you said, you put a lot of effort into that. He did. Yeah. But it, and it is, it's so exhausting as the teacher when you're just like, (laughs) cool, cool. Yep. This makes this totally makes sense, but yeah, that's our job. And I think that's when we lose that joy and that ability to look at kids and go, well done, friend. Well done. We need to get out. Like, yeah, it's time. In your opinion, what work do you feel there's still left to be done in regards to exposing others to gifted education? Ooh, so I think it's twofold. I think we have a lot of veteran teachers that don't know what gifted students look like. Um, And and the number of times I've had to advocate for a kid because somebody says they can't go to gifted because they didn't turn in my work. Excuse you, no, that's not a thing. Um, Or they haven't, you know, they're they're not a perfect student so they can't take the AP class, right? They, They didn't have this class in middle school that gets you ready for 11th grade English. Like what? That's not a thing. (laughs) <laughs> Although it is, right? If you didn't start in honors in middle school, there's some extra steps you have to do to be able to take AP when you're a junior. I'm sorry, no 12-year-old is thinking to when they're 17. That's just not a thing. Um, so I think having those conversations of what's actually important for your class. And I also think we need to have some really hard conversations with um, our middle and high school friends about who gets access to AP and that you can't block them just because they don't turn in their work as a freshman or because they haven't had the right classes or because you might have to differentiate. Yeah, that's the, that's the job. So they may need some extra support because they haven't had that class, but then that's your job to give them that extra support. Um, And that's challenging for some of our teachers that have been teaching AP for a few years now. And, you know, it used to be, these were the easy classes. And I think we need to get away from that mentality that students who may not be good at school can still be good at English Mm -hmm. and deserve to be in those classrooms. I think we also need to do a way better job about talking with families about options and that there is not a path for gifted students. And just because your kid is gifted doesn't mean they have to do all the things. Like, do the ones that feel right. Do the ones that help them grow. Challenge, yes. I don't believe that children should just be like, woo, school is easy and great. And I only do the things I like. That's not the real world. And I can tell you what happens when they get to me in the college, if that's the way their schooling has been up to this point. It's not pretty. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean we they need to be doing eight hours of homework every night and and hating life. Like there's, there's a middle ground here. Um, 
that we need to do better at helping families understand that do one or two APs. You don't have to do all six that are offered, especially if you don't like them. Let it go. Just let it go. Your kid is still going to college, I promise. (laughs) So Heather, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Sure. The easiest way is my email, and that is Bauer, B-O-W-E-R-H-E-A at meredith.edu. I love to have these conversations, so shoot me an email. We can um, set up a Zoom call. We can set up a phone call. I'm not in my office often, so phone is not a good idea. I will call you back eventually, Um, (laughs) but an email, you'll get a 24-hour response. Well, you're in the classroom doing the... (laughs) Doing the hard work. Yeah, that's awesome. So the last thing that we like to ask every guest is this divide about the term gifted. So a lot of times the term gifted can lead to misconceptions and even prevent students from being identified because they don't check all these preconceived boxes. So do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? I don't think the term is problematic. I think the way it's used is. And so I think we often looked at gifted as this static thing. Either you're identified in third grade when you're eight or you're not. And you're either gifted or you're not. And I very rarely see children that fit that checkbox. I think every child truly is gifted. Some of their gifts may not present in a school setting they may not be gifted across the board, but you're going to find that one splinter skill where you're like, there's our gift. And we need to celebrate and recognize those in all students. So I would much prefer that we assume all students are gifted. We pre-assess everybody on every standard, and then we go from there. Are there going to be kids that every time they take the pre-assessment, you're like, yep, they knew this too. Yep, they knew this too. Sure. But you're also going to have the surprises and you're going to have gifted kids where they get to that standard and you're like, whoa, we have a hole. We have no idea what this is. And that's good for them too. It is really good for students who have sailed through things to bump their toes and go, I don't, I guess I don't know how to do this. Maybe there is more to life than what is inside my brain. And there you have it. Thank you for listening, and we really hope you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine. We would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And if that feels like too much, we get it. Instead, just take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media. Every like and share counts and helps us to reach families and educators who are trying to navigate and advocate for the gifted loved ones in their lives. We'll see you in two weeks when we interview another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community.